If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Revelation. That's right, just the book of Revelation. I don't have one verse this morning. I'm breaking from my normal pattern. We're going to be bouncing around the book of Revelation just a little bit today. Uh, but go ahead and turn to that book. It's the last one in the Bible, so if you're having problems finding it, just go all the way to the back. If you find the concordance, turn back a little bit, and then there, there you'll find the book of Revelation. Um, but I was thinking through just songs of the season, and some of you heard me reference the song last week, Joy to the World, and one of the things you don't, may not know about Joy to the World, it was written in 1719 by a guy named Isaac Watts, who wrote many of the English hymns of his era. And the song Joy to the World, oftentimes we sing it at Christmas as we look back toward, or look back upon the first coming of Jesus, upon his first arrival, his first advent, but the song was actually written and celebration and looking forward toward his second advent. Like many of the English hymns of its day, it came out of Psalm, the book of Psalms. In Psalm 98, it was the text that kind of gave the basis or foundation for that hymn as it was written. And it's looking forward to not Jesus' second advent, his second arrival, his second coming. Now it's appropriate to sing, about, sing of it at his first coming because when do, indeed he is our king who has come. Indeed he has brought joy that he shed abroad in our hearts. But there's some of the verses in that song that really um, look forward to a day in which uh, God's going to make everything right and set all the wrongs right. And listen, the third verse in the, the, the song Joy to the World, listen to how the author of that, psalm, or that song, Isaac Watts, writes it. He says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Now listen, when, when, the, when Isaac Watts writes those lyrics, he's looking forward to a day in which Jesus would return and he would set everything right and sins and sorrows would cease to grow and there wouldn't be no longer thorns that would infest the ground of our world, the ground of our land, and the ground of our lives. And yet in the day, today, we recognize that there are still thorns that infest the ground, aren't there? It takes a, just a, a cursory look at the headlines of our land to notice that there are still thorns that infest the ground. The thorns of disease, the thorns of death, the thorns of war, the thorns of poverty, the thorns of hunger. You look at the landscape of humanity and you see it. Just a few weeks ago, there were many who gathered for the funeral of uh, George H.W. Bush to lay his body to rest one of the presidents of our nation. And if you watch that, any of that funeral, one of the things that you saw, and you can call it a celebration of life if you'd like, but at the end of the day, whenever a son stands up to speak of his father and he breaks down into tears because of the impact the man had on his life, you recognize that death is still an enemy. It's still a funeral. Right? Or to read the headlines and hear about how um, uh, the bipartisan report that came out that placed blame square upon the shoulders of the Saudi prince for the murder of, the execution of a dissident journalist, right? There's still thorns that infest the ground. You look at the headlines of our land, you also look at the headlines of our own lives, and you see that there's thorns that still infest the ground, aren't there? I was visiting with one of our members yesterday just about uh, his cancer treatment and his wife's illness and his kids who both have Crohn's disease. Right, I can think back to a beautiful saint that we laid to rest earlier this year. And there, in our personal lives, in our relational lives, there are still, it's still thorny. It's still thorny. 
And yet, whenever we sing this song, we look forward to a day in which there'll be no more thorns, but only flowers. There'll be no more brokenness and only beauty as God comes to set things right and renew all things. See, the season of Advent is a, is a season of expectation. It's not just looking backwards, but it's looking forward. And so what we want to do for a little while this morning, we want to look forward. So, so for those of us who have some thorniness in our lives right now, we might know where we can find comfort and where we can find hope. And so we find that in the book of Revelation. So we're going we're gonna to scan it a little bit this morning and take a look at several things. And the first thing I want you to see is this. In the book of, Reve- in the book of Revelation, there's, if you've got thorns in your life right now, if your life's a little thorny right now, you've got to look up for comfort. You've got to look up for comfort. See, in the book of Revelation, there is this word that appears some 40 times throughout the book. Uh, and it's the word throne. Throne, right? Now, it's not the throne that appears in your bathroom, but the throne that appears in a chamber of a palace, right? It's the throne upon which a king is to be seated and upon which he would rule and reign and issue decrees and exercise his sovereign lordship, right? In the opening verses of Revelation, I'm not going to give you all 40 of them, but I'll give you a handful, right? We'd be here all day. So you're like, that would be about your style. But in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John greets his readers, the seven churches of Asia, with these words. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So the very outset, John can barely even get through the greeting without referencing the one who is and who was and who is to come, who is on the throne, and that grace and peace is coming from him to them. In chapter 3, as Jesus addresses the self-sufficient church in Laodicea, you read these words in verse 21 where he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus conquered, sat down on the throne of his father, and to all the saints who would remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of their earthly pilgrimage that he would grant with to them that they would sit on his throne alongside of him. And then in John chapter, or not John, in Revelation 4, John gets this glimpse into the throne room of heaven. It's a beautiful scene depicted in Revelation 4, beginning in verse 2, where he writes these words, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as, as, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. If you drop down into verses 8, 9, and following, he talks about the four living creatures who are around the throne. And he says in verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things things and by your will they existed and were created 
So in Revelation 4, you see this throne that John sees. There's one who's seated on it. There are those who are around the throne. There are things that come forth from the throne. There are things that are cast before the throne. There's one who is on the throne who's worthy of all glory and honor and majesty and praise and power. The throne's an important piece of furniture in the book of Revelation. Very important piece of furniture, but why? Why is it so significant? Why is it so prominent that it shows up over and over and over and over again? Here's why. See, the main point of the book of Revelation is this, that Jesus wins in the end and those who remain faithful win with him. Right? The book of Revelation is not written to confuse you, but to encourage you. To encourage those who are suffering. It was written to a people, listen to this, who were living under the oppression and suffering of a Roman Empire. In AD 81, a man by the name of Domitian rose to power as the emperor in Rome. And he ruled until AD 96, 15 years. And during his rule, he, he would, man, listen, this dude was a piece of work, all right? During his rule, he demanded to be addressed as Lord and God. And when the Christians refused to address him as such, he began to put many of them to death and a, a wave of persecution broke out across the empire. Many Christians were killed in the most horrific ways. They were pulled in half by wild animals. They were fed to lions. They were dipped in tar and used as torches to light garden parties while the aristocracy and the ruling parties gathered to celebrate. They had holes drilled in their skulls and molten lead was poured in while they were still alive. And they crucified multitudes of individuals. John, the apostle, refused to bend his knee and called a mission Lord and God. And so John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, a tiny island just off the coast of modern-day Turkey where he would live out the rest of his days. And on that island, John receives this revelation from Jesus himself. And he, he sees Jesus. And one of the central things to this vision that John has of Jesus is this throne that shows up over and over and over again. It's a central piece of furniture because listen, here's why. Because what people need in the midst of suffering, whenever they're being pricked and prodded and poked by all kinds of thorns that still infest the ground of our lives, what they need most is not a refresher course on Christian values. What they need most is a fresh vision of the ruling, reigning, and exalted Christ that's what they need more than anything they need to look up and know that he is still seated on the throne that he is still ruling that he is still reigning that he is still exalted that he's still in control that his things are not out of order in their lives that there is nothing that is coming to him that is not passed to them that is not passed through him that's what they that's what you need to know this Christmas as well, if there are thorns in your life. Listen, I can remember a few years ago, I keep saying that, man, and it's more than a few. I still think I'm young. I remember a number of years ago traveling to Russia as a part of a mission team that was going to help um, encourage churches over there and do some training. And so we worked with some churches in Moscow and some churches in the interior of Russia in a city called Kazan. Now, when we flew from the States uh, through London and over to Moscow, uh, we 
got on a Russian airline in Moscow to fly to the interior of Russia. And I, 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 I kind of joke about this now, um, but in that day it wasn't much of a joke to me because I think the airline that we boarded in order to fly into the interior of Russia was like a relic from the 1960s that somebody had unearthed somewhere and they thought, let's put this thing back in service. Uh, it was... Had, it, was, it was one of those planes that you boarded through the butt, you know, up the tail right there, and you kind of came in. Um, you could still smoke on the thing, right? And the, 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 the chair, the seats were like this burlapy kind of fabric that they used back then. Um, it was all scratchy and itchy. And so as we're sitting there waiting for them to begin to taxi along the tarmac to the runway for takeoff, I'm just praying like, Jesus, you and I have been through some stuff. And, and this is going to be a story to tell one day if you get me through it, right? And so we begin to take off. And as we begin to take off, it's kind of cloudy, a little bit rainy. And so we begin to rise up through those clouds. And if you've ever risen up through the clouds on takeoff, right, you know, you can't see anything that's around you, right? You're trusting that the pilot is flying that plane based on his instruments because he can't see anything that's around him either, right? And so as you're ascending, as we were ascending through those clouds, the plane began to experience some turbulence, and it just kind of began to shake around a little bit, right? And have you ever been through that kind of pretty severe turbulence where it's like all of a sudden the plane feels like it just dropped about 80 feet in the air and your stomach kind of comes up into your throat? Right? It was that kind of turbulence. I'm thinking the plane's going to shake apart because I, I was certain there were parts of it that were being held together by duct tape and popsicle sticks, right? And so I'm just thinking this thing's going to come to pieces in the sky and we're all going to end right here, right now, and go meet Jesus, but as we begin, continue to ascend through all this turbulence and through all the shaking, and we, begin, we eventually burst through the clouds, you know what was still shining? The sun. Even though we couldn't see it at the time. Even though we couldn't lay eyes on it. Even though we were wondering, is this, is, what, are our lives about to come to an end right here? But whenever you punch through that ceiling of clouds and you rise above them all of a sudden you see you know what the sun's still shining it's still there and listen for those of us who are in the midst of a storm this Christmas you're in the midst of being poked by the thorns that infest the ground of your life I want you to know the sun is still shining because the sun is still seated on the throne he's still reigning He's still ruling. He's still exalted. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. And if you're looking for comfort, listen, so often we have a tendency to look out around us for comfort, comfort from things, comfort from other people. But the Bible over and over again says, look up for comfort. Look up. It tells us that in the Old Testament and the New. In Psalm 121, love these verses. Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the what? To the hills, right? From where does my help come? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Lift your eyes up. Look to the hills where God is seated on high and reigning and ruling that's where your help comes from in the midst of the storm but we're told as well in the new testament in the book of hebrews after the author of hebrews comes through the hall of faith and all these men and women who've gone before us and walked the path ahead of us he says now then therefore since you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses Run the race with endurance. Cast off all the entanglements that would hinder you. And then he says in verse 2, fix your eyes on who? Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, right, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look up, church. Look up. See, some of our problem is that we keep looking out, expecting to find comfort in all these other places. But the Bible over and over again just says, look up. Because he's the only one who can heal. He's the only one who can give you perspective. And know this morning that he is still reigning. Second thing that the book of Revelation teaches us about these thorns that continue to infest the ground of our lives is this. Not only do we look up for comfort, but we look ahead for hope. We look ahead for hope. See, in Revelation 21, you find a glorious depiction of what the future holds for everyone who would place their faith in the risen Christ. For everyone who would bend their knee to this reigning Christ and submit their will to him. And for everyone who would look forward to his return. In Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, I read this text every funeral that I preach because I want people to know who are there, who are hurting and grieving, that there's something on the horizon that is better and it's coming. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. John has this picture of the new heavens and the new earth as a place where there will be no more chaos, no more pain, no more crying, no more tears, no more death, no more separation, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sin. It will all come to an end because the former things, he says, have passed away and he, God himself, is making everything new. He's renewing all things and making them new. Now listen, when John begins to, one interesting feature here that just is 
has encouraged me over the years is this. When John says, and behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I don't think what John, is, what John isn't saying there is this. Is there, in, in, in the new earth, there's not going to be any large bodies of water. Right, that'd make me real sad as somebody who likes to fish. Right? That's not what he's saying. But in the ancient world, in the ancient world, the sea was a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of evil. Because in, in the ancient world, they had, they had no concept of what lie beneath them as they were out on these small boats fishing. Right? And so they didn't have any sonar equipment. They didn't have any scuba equipment to dive down and see what was down. It was just this unknown abyss and it, the, the seas would rise at times and the winds would blow and storms would roll in and it would cause like these massive waves. It was just chaotic. And so in fact, in the Gospels, when you see Jesus stilling the storms and you see him calming the seas, it's not just that the fact that he commands the winds and the waves, but he's also able to still the chaos of life. And John's saying there's not going to be any chaos any longer in the new heavens and the new earth, but chaos will be replaced by order. And all that turbulence will be replaced by peace. That's what's coming. And even for John, as one who was exiled onto a small island looking out across the sea toward those that he cared for and loved, for him, the sea also meant that there was a separation between him and the churches that he was writing to. And that he cared for. And John's saying, in that day, there's no longer going to be a gap between us, but we will share fellowship together and fellowship with our Lord. It's a beautiful picture of what lie on the horizon. Beautiful picture of what's to come. And listen, there's perhaps outside the Bible, at least in my estimation, maybe no better place in which this is poetically captured than in the song of a hip-hop artist by the name of Andy Minio. In a song called Death Has Died. I want you to hear what he says. I can't say it nearly as cool as he can. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, one day my God's going to crack the sky. He's going to bottle up every tear that we've ever cried. Bring truth to every lie. Justice for every crime. All our shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. Can you imagine a world in which there is nothing that you feel like you have to conceal any longer? Nothing that you have to hide. No secrets that you're afraid of bringing into the light. No more broken hearts. No more broken homes. No more locking doors. No more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. No more cancerous cells that will take our loved ones. No more hungry kids. No more natural disasters. No more tsunamis. No more hurricanes. No more tornadoes. No more earthquakes. No more the poverty in which kids are going to bed hungry every single evening. He says, no child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we wear all black because death will be dead and we'll lock the casket. There's perhaps no, no more poetic place that I've found a depiction of that day than those words. That's what's in store for everyone who loves and treasures and trusts Jesus. And listen, all this will be true, not because our loved ones will be there. You know that? Not because our loved ones will be there. 
And listen, while for those who are in Christ, there will be a great family reunion one day around the throne. We will get to worship. But all this will be true, not because our loved ones will be there, but because the great lover of our souls will be there. Look at what John says. He says in Revelation 21, 3, he says, that he heard the voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away their tears. Not, he didn't say your grandmama's gonna be there wiping away your tears. He will wipe away your tears. He didn't say your daddy's gonna be there, right, putting an end to death, but God himself is bringing an end to death. It will be a glorious family reunion, but all because the great lover of our souls will be present. He will be with us. He will be, we will no longer have to see through a mirror dimly, but we will see face to face in the very presence of the majesty and beauty of God. He will dwell with us, church. And that is, that's good news. And so when the thorns infest our lives and they begin to poke us and we begin to bleed, we look up to find comfort to know that he is still on the throne reigning in the midst of all of our hardship and difficulty and disease. But we look out forward ahead of us to find hope because we know the world won't always be this way. But he's coming to set everything right. And then in the present, listen, in the present, two things and we're done first one is this i know i gotta have four points but the first one is this like you're like okay what do we do with all this let me tell you you gotta first thing you gotta do is this you gotta let the future pull you forward there's two ways if you're stuck somewhere to get out get unstuck one you can have somebody come behind you and push you out or you can have somebody come in front of you and pull you out right a few years ago, I happened, my, those of you who've seen my truck, you might think, man, that thing looks mean. Like, it could go through some stuff, but no, it's just really, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a sheep in wolf's clothing is really what it is, right? It's not four-wheel drive. It looks like it should be four-wheel drive, but it's not four-wheel drive. It's just two-wheel drive. And a few years ago, I happened to back up at a friend of mine's house out in the country into an area that was, uh, had, it, it had rained recently, but there was no more standing water, but it was just still kind of mushy. And I didn't know it, and I backed right up into that really, that really saturated, mushy spot, right? And as I began to put my truck in forward to move forward down their driveway, my back wheels just began to spin and spin and spin and spin. And so I began to rut up that part of their yard, and they were very appreciative of my contribution. But my friend had a Jeep, and on the front of that Jeep, he had a winch, and so he pulls his Jeep out of the garage and he may or may not have had to take that winch and attach it to my truck and may or may not have had to pull me out of that low spot. I can neither confirm nor deny that that actually happened. Um, but listen, that's one way to get, out, get unstuck, right? Is to have somebody in front of you pulling you forward. And listen, there is a sense in which this future that lies ahead of us in our lives in the present should be pulling us forward. It should be shaping the way that we live today. The future that we hope for should be shaping our lives in the present. It should be pulling us forward. Listen, some of us have heard the old saying, right? You're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good, right? You've heard that before. If, but if you really understood that saying, if you really understand this truth, then what you would really say is if you aren't of any earthly good, then you're not heavenly minded enough. You're not heavenly minded enough. 
As one Anglican theologian in the 1700s said, he said, the life of a Christian is wondrously ruled in this world by consideration and meditation of the life of another world. That your life is ruled today in the present by what you hope for and look forward to and long for in the future. Right? If you think about it this way, uh, our lives in the present ought to be like trailers for the full feature presentation of eternity that is to come. Right? If you go to the movies, right? Some of us are going to go to movies this Christmas and we're going to go watch like whatever's out, Mary Poppins or The Grinch or all right, some shoot 'em up action movie they might go like to see. And before the movie, the actual feature presentation starts, you see just the whole host of previews or trailers, don't you? So you sit there and you're like, man, come on and go get some more popcorn. Like, when's the actual thing going to get here? Right? And so you're watching all the trailers, but all those trailers are there for a reason. They're there to, to point you forward to a feature presentation that's coming, aren't they? That's what they're there for. And listen, our lives as Christians in the present ought to look like trailers for the future. The full feature presentation of life that is to come because the future is pulling us forward. It's shaping how we live today and now here and now. And so listen, if what we're longing for in the future is a life without abuse and a life without poverty and a life without hunger, then there are some Christians today who would step into the roles of being a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate, and speaking on behalf of children in court cases who cannot speak for themselves because they're coming from neglected and abused homes. Because the future's pulling us forward. We're a trailer for the age that is to come. We're a preview of the full feature presentation, right? And so we're releasing children from poverty and from abuse or tutoring disadvantaged kids or we're functioning as trailers of the future by counseling those who are in marriages that are struggling, right? And so we're leaning into that, not being like, man, that's not my problem. Wash my hands. They can figure it out for themselves, right? We're coming real close to encourage because we look forward to a day in which there'll be no more broken homes. And so today we're living as a trailer of what it, the full feature presentation that is to come. And listen, that's going to be a seven, a 18K, like forget 4K, right? It's going to be whatever, what, 18K, right? Full clarity, Dolby 73.1 surround, right? That's what's coming. And so we begin to, we're a trailer for that. As we help see marriages be put back together and kids cared for in our professional lives, we're people of integrity in the office, in our dealings with other people, because we're being shaped by the future in our academic lives, students, right? We're, people, we're students of integrity, so we don't cut corners, we don't cheat on exams, we don't copy off of other people's papers, right? But we do our best and s- submit it to our teachers and un- as we're working unto the Lord. In marriages and dating relationships, we exercise purity. We exercise purity. Why? Because we're a trailer. We believe God one day is going to make us pure, fully and finally and forever. So we're a trailer of that in the here and now, in our financial decisions, and our stewardship, in all these aspects of our lives, the future is pulling us forward and shaping the way that we live in the present. Because we're looking ahead for our hope. That's ex- I don't know about you, but that's a little exciting. 
Come on. Right? Now, listen. We're going to land a plane. Between his present reign and that future renewal of all things is his return. And, and, and as hard as it is for our culture to stomach Revelation 19, we've got to go there. If you're going to get to the future renewal of all things, you've got to have the return of Christ because Revelation 20, 19 comes before Revelation 21 and 22. So in Revelation 19, you find this description of Jesus' return. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Long for that this Christmas. Long for it. In Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which, he, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thighs he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." Listen, this Je- look at this Jesus. This Jesus is not wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, right? But he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and seated on a white horse. He does not come to, 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 to serve and he does not come to suffer. He doesn't come to die, but he comes to fight and to judge and to make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire piercing. They see everything. They see everything. He strikes down the nations with the sword of his word, of his mouth, and he rules them in strength with a rod of iron. He wears a crown with many diadems upon it, and he has a tattoo on his thigh that reads King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, the text says this, that he will tread the fury of the winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress in Jesus' day would have been just this big vat. And they brought the, the grapes in from the field. They dumped them into the wine press. And then somebody got in there after they scrubbed all the toe cheese off, right? They got into the wine press and they just began to crush the grapes under their feet. And as they crushed the grapes, the, the juice would run out and they would collect it in the basins and then they would set it up to ferment to make wine. But this picture of this Jesus who's going to tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, there will not be grapes in the winepress in that day. But there will be his enemies. Those who have refused to rejoice in him but have rejected him utterly. And he will crush them and it will not be juice running out but it will be blood as he comes to judge. And I think that this depiction of Jesus is perhaps one of the reasons why Western Americans do not long for his return. Right? Because the most famous Bible verse used to be, like at football games where people hold up the sign, what? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Now the most famous Bible verse is, judge not lest ye be judged. Because we live in a culture 
that has such an aversion to the idea of culpability and responsibility to an authority who has the right and power to judge. But listen, if you have an aversion to that, if you're put off by the idea of judgment, the reason that you are put off by that is because you live in a 21st century American culture. Not just 21st century culture, but 21st century Western developed culture. Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian theologian, said this. Growing up in Croatia, he understood suffering and war and atrocities that had been committed. Listen to what he says. He says it takes the quiet suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. But in a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, that idea would invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, he says that God would not be worthy of our worship. If he didn't say enough one day, he would not be worthy of all our adoration, of all our love and loyalty, affection and allegiance. He must judge. I think maybe a second reason we don't long for his return is for some of us, again, we've lived in the quietness of a suburb and we haven't tasted suffering, sickness, or severe consequences of sin in our lives. We haven't been sinned against violently. We haven't suffered deeply. Like some of us, our life has just kind of been like a walk in the park. But for those who know what it's like to suffer, for those who know what it's like to, 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 to wrestle with debilitating sickness, they long for the return of Jesus. They long for it. They look for it. They wait for it with expectancy. And the third reason I think maybe some of us, we don't long for the return of Christ is because and I think this is perhaps for the majority of American culture. This is probably where they stand. We don't long for or look for Jesus' return if what we have invested our lives in will burn up when he does. See, if what we've invested our lives in building and creating and consuming will all burn up whenever Jesus returns. Now why would we long for that? Why would we look for that? But if what we've invested our lives in are things that will endure for all eternity, then we, like John, when he comes to the end of Revelation 22, say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Is that you this morning? This Advent? You say, come Lord Jesus. Because I've been investing my life in something. It's not going to burn up. But it's only going to be richer and sweeter and more glorious when he returns. So listen, if you're someone right now whose life is infested by thorns, and I can imagine that for all of us in the room, to some degree they are. 
Stop looking outward to other people, to other possessions, to other things to bring you comfort and start looking up. Lift your eyes to the hills. Look ahead toward the hope of a renewed world in which everything's going to be set right. Let that pull you forward as you continue to endure and as you live as a trailer in this life for the life that is to come. And then as you pray, maybe a part of our prayer this Advent would be, come Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Let's pray together. Father, may the truth of your word bring comfort and hope to all who long for your appearing, the appearing of your Son. Would you remind us as your children today that in the midst of disease and divorce, in the midst of death, in the midst of financial struggles and miscarriages and wayward children, in the midst of all the sickness and sorrow of this world, that you are still seated on the throne and ruling and reigning over it all. There is nothing that will utterly shake our lives to pieces because of your grace, because you will keep us Father, help us to look ahead toward a world that will be set right and renewed in all ways. And may our hope and our longing and expectation of that day, our consideration of that day, shape our present realities that we might become trailers in the present for the glorious future presentation of our eternal future. And that we would be on our knees before you praying, come Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Would you come to make everything right? Would you come to renew all things? Would you come to bind up our brokenness? and to rule and reign forever and ever. Amen.